You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. This is Chuck Murrell, and welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. This week, I have a friend of mine on that I, I should have had on a long time ago. Uh, we've been talking about doing this for a while, and it's my fault. I haven't got it done. Aaron Brown might be my long-lost brother, but he blogs nonetheless at minnesotabrown.com. You can read his book, Overburden, Modern Life on the Iron Range. He's featured often in the Star Tribune, Min Post, Minnesota Public Radio, and most recently on the online publication, The Daily Yonder. And he is the host of the great Northern Radio Show. Aaron Brown, welcome to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey, Chuck. Glad to be here. This is exciting. Uh, it is exciting. You know, you and I do have kind of parallel interests in life. Even though we, we get paired up on the radio sometimes on the opposite side of the political spectrum, I feel like you yeah. and I could chat all day, couldn't we? Yeah, we're opposite politically, but we're both equally uncomfortable in our own parties. That, How about yeah, that? Gosh, you know what? I think that's true. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we won't let that slip out too far. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I want just for a minute for you to start this conversation by just talking about the Iron Range. And I know if I say that, we could probably just go for two hours. But th- there's a lot of people listening who don't know the Minnesota Iron Range. Can you maybe just talk about the geography a little bit, like what makes this a place? And then I'll ask you some follow-up questions, and we'll talk about the people and the culture and that kind of thing. Sure. Well, it, most people can imagine what Minnesota looks like on the map. Uh, we're that northern flyover state. And Up in the northern part of the state, which is actually north of St. Cloud, a lot of people think the state ends at St. Cloud, but actually, uh, even farther north, that's where you find the Iron Range. And if you're familiar with Duluth, which is the regional center city uh, at the tip of uh, Lake Superior, it looks like Lake Superior is pointing at Duluth, about 85 to 90 miles north and northwest of Duluth are these string of uh, little communities, and they were all built along a geological formation of iron, the, the richest on the continent one of the richest in the world when it was discovered. This uh, region, uh, 135 miles long, a bunch of small towns in a row, and each town built near the mouth of a, of a mine. At one time, all these towns were places where miners lived and walked to the edge of town where the mine was. And that was the founding reason to be for all of these little towns, and, and all of them were built about 100, 110 years ago. We're, we just had a whole heap of centennials just sure. recently. And right. Those are done now. We've got to wait for the uh, sesquicentennial or whatever it is. But <laughs> um, anyway, so, uh, yeah, there, there were blue-collar towns, house, housing stock, business stock, all around the same age. As you'd imagine, like any uh, Rust Belt part of the country, and this was definitely part of that Rust Belt you know, raw material to manufactured goods part of 20th century America, economically it's, it's fallen on hard, harder times in the last 30 to 40 years. Talk a little bit about the heyday. Yeah. Because there was a point in time, and it's before our time, although we might have saw a little bit of the end of it, that these were places that, this is kind of like the backbone of the, the country, right? I mean, these were places right. that were employing a lot of people and, and had all the growth and the ac- excitement, the action. It was never huge in terms of population. I mean, it was bigger than it is now. There were about 100,000 people living in the towns at, at its peak, maybe a little more than that, more than half foreign-born, which is important to remember that, that 100 years ago or 90 years ago, um, early 1910s and 20s, you had a more diverse population, or as diverse as New York, at the peak of its immigration boom. So if you you know you, you can imagine like Ellis Island and the diversity of New York's neighborhoods, it was like that here, only on a much smaller scale. So uh, you had all of these immigrants and all of these mines. This is really where one of the big places where Rockefeller and Carnegie and Morgan made their made their money off of, of um, this iron in the ground and, and feeding it into a network of in a vertically integrated steel uh, mills. 
three quarters of the iron in used in World War II came from one mine north of Hibbing, the Hall Rust Mine, which you can still go see. It's actually they're still mining there, but you can go look at this giant hole in the ground that that basically fed all of the iron into all the steel that supported the whole U.S. war effort, which you know was monumental. Just vast amounts of material, and, and a lot of it's buried in Europe right now, or or in the Pacific. Right. That's what this was, and it was really a, a, a microcosm, a, a, an example of the American experience of the 20th century and late 1800s, all just condensed into one century in a small place. All of the hurt and the effort and the labor and the strife and the labor battles and the political battles, all just crammed into these little towns in the middle of the woods and uh, in a place where until about 50 years ago, it was literally hard to get here. Roads weren't paved or, you know, uh, I should say maybe 60 years ago. Until World War II, it was it was considered remote. You had to kind of make a big effort to get up here. People stayed in the towns and didn't travel much um, when they got here. So, and and the heyday, you know, um, my one of my favorite historical figures is the mayor of Hibbing, president of the Hibbing Village, I should say, Victor Power, who was really the first powerful, no pun intended, mayor of a range town, the, the first one to actively stand up to the mining companies after the mining companies were making lots and lots of money. At one time, Hibbing, which by benefit of its geography had a lot of the iron mines in its in its city limits, was able to tax, uh, because of the value of that land, so much money that for a couple years during Victor Power's tenure, the city of Hibbing was raising more money than the state of Delaware. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> when Hibbing... Uh, it was bigger then, but not much bigger. It's a city of, you know, well, it's 19,000 now. I think it would have been in the low 20s then. It was so much money that when the mines threatened him that they'd shut down for, for taxing that much, he said, well, we'll we'll put every miner to work mowing the grass. Uh, and, it, and the threat worked because it was true. He could have done that. Wow. <laughs> that's the heyday. And, of course, that's... Uh, both amusing and, and shocking politically to some, I suppose, but it was a true um, frontier. It was an industrial frontier. My friend of mine, historian Pam Brunfeld, calls it an industrial frontier. So it's a part of the industrial story of America, but it's also on the frontier in, in, the, in a geographically isolated place, which makes for such an interesting culture and story. When I'm visualizing these mines, I, I see the wide open pits when I go up there today. <laughs> But some of these were also just the underground, like the traditional mines where you would yeah. go deep under the ground, right? Yeah, well, the, all of the mining that was done when they discovered iron here was typically done in underground mines. That was the widely understood part of mining. And the immigrants who came over who knew about mining, like my ancestors were from Cornwall, England, which is a mining area in England. And, and uh, Cornwall sent experienced mining engineers all over the world everywhere there's there's a saying in cornwall wherever there's a hole in the ground there's a cornwall boy jumping into it but um there was this really widespread understanding of underground mining at that time well the the thing about iron range ore that was so different is the hematite red ore it was like a fine almost like a paste powdery pasty almost like a Magic sand, if you have kids and you know that crazy magic sand yeah, stuff. My, my wife hates that stuff. It's terrible stuff, but that's what this was. And and so one of the reasons why the Iron Range wasn't discovered sooner was because no one believed that that was usable stuff. They thought it was just mud or muck. But it's, it's almost pure iron. And they found that they could just shovel this stuff untreated into the blast furnaces. And once they figured that out, they were scraping that. They could literally scrape it off the ground at first. You know, those early miners, that's what they were doing. And so some of the early pits were just scraped open. And that was kind of uh, like money laying out there, you know, millions of dollars just laying out there. And that's what they did. But then, of course, they, cha- they as they depleted that stuff, they chased the, the veins of ore underground. And so we had the uh, my grandfather and great-grandfather um, worked in underground mines all over the region. Of course, there are three iron ranges uh, in Minnesota. The Misabi is the big one that everyone knows about. But there was one up in Vermilion by Ely, and then, of course, the Cuyuna Range, which is Crosby, Ironton, closer to Brainerd, where you are. Down by my place, yeah. Yeah, in your hood. And um, my family worked in all three of them when they spent time on, on all three. And that was pretty common. People worked, went wherever the work was, so... 
having family histories that included Crosby, Ely, and 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 Eveleth was was very normal for a lot of people in in, in the early days. So, yeah, a lot of underground mining, and and then you know, as you would imagine, the the wonderful, easy to get magic ore pretty much got blown out through World War II. I mean, I just told you how much iron they took from it, and of course that depleted a lot of the readily accessible surface ore and and the easier to get underground ore. And as a result, in the 50s, it was petering out. Natural ore was getting harder to mine, and it was widely it widely seemed that there would be no more mining. And of course, on the Cuyuna, near where you are, that that's um, very much what happened. The Cuyuna range closed up in the 50s. The University of Minnesota, E.W. Davis, uh, a noted uh, mining engineer and researcher, developed uh, what's called the taconite process, which is a way to process that harder iron iron rock that surrounds the ore and it's a 60 some percent iron or i should say the, the product they make is 90 some percent but the, the the ore itself is lower grade ore and they have to process it through a whole long thing and so the mining you see today is taconite mining which is crushing big rocks and extracting iron f- from those rocks more expensive but more um, intensive more energy uh, more of an energy hog system but but they get enough iron out to, to turn that into pellets that they use in blast furnaces to this day. And, of course, now we're running into a new era where even that's in question. Right, right. I want to ask you about the physical layout of these systems because you, you have all these towns and mm-hmm. all this stuff got shipped out through Duluth, right? It all went by train? Yeah, Duluth that- or the North Shore. Yeah, Silver Bay, um, two harbors, uh, Superior, Wisconsin, across from Duluth. But, yeah, all the trains went down down the ridge. The range, if you think of the range, is this 135-mile string. It's actually, topographically, if you have one of those maps that is a relief map, you know, you can look at it and feel the bump. It's like a ridge. That's actually, the name Masabi comes from the Ojibwe word for giant, which is uh, what they looked at it as, as a sleeping giant laying on the ground. That's kind of... So anyway, the, all the ore went down from, from the range down to Duluth um, and onto the ships out east. Um, at one time, Duluth had a steel mill, but for the most part, all the ore went to Pittsburgh, Cleveland, and New York. But I should say the money went to New York. Right. But the- I was going to ask you about that, because in a lot of these places, we can still see... Essentially, the traces of that wealth. I mean, uh, along the North Shore, you've mm-hmm. got some massive mansions. Some, some those the, the ones in Duluth on the east side of Duluth, going up the lake. Yeah. Those were all mining executives. Yeah, those are mining mansions. The Merritts had uh, the Merritts who who opened up the Masabi Iron Range. This family of prospectors, uh, they had a, a, a kind of a mansion in Duluth when when the times were good for them. And there were prominent families in Duluth. You know, you had a, a whole up, kind of an upper class in Duluth that were, were people who, for the most part, owned the mining and timber interests up here and in northern Minnesota, up in the farther north, the more geographically isolated places. So you had, from the day one, you had this separation of the, the labor and the wealth. And, of course, a lot of the history of the place was the workers trying to get some of that wealth back and the communities trying to get that wealth back. But I think the, the, the disparity has always been there. Um, and it's even more pronounced now because the executives don't live in Duluth anymore. In fact, they don't even really live in Cleveland or Pittsburgh or New York anymore. Or if they do, it's, it's a hedge fund, uh, a beast of many heads that you can't necessarily pin down. That's who, who, who really owns or, or controls a lot of these mining companies now. Do you see the vestiges of that still in places like Hibbing and Virginia and mm-hmm. Ely, or, is, or was it never there in the first place? Well, Hibbing is a good example of a town where you had more local wealth uh, in the heyday because, you know, these mines did have management that they, that they kept. And, of course, some of the big chiefs, uh, the, the Pubas, had places where they wanted to stay when they came up. Of course, it was geographically remote, so... You know they had to put some top people in in the towns, and uh, so you have some nice houses in Hibbing. You know, if you want to take an architecture tour, you can see these. Uh, you know, what would have in 1915 been a a very um, a very nice house. You can see these around, and and so there's some element of that. But you know, now you have management at the mine itself who lives in the area, usually not in town, usually in a nice place on a lake somewhere. 
but mostly that 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 sense that uh, the Oliver, the old Oliver Mining Company, which is U.S. Steel, that the Oliver has a guy in a house looking down on all the workers in town. That that's gone now. The 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 bosses, the real bosses, are are even more distant than before. I want to talk a little bit about the transition. There's a period of time where this was a, a very labor-intensive undertaking. Mm-hmm. And now the number of people employed actually in mining up there, well, well, not an insignificant percentage of the population, is obviously much, much smaller. Can you talk about how that transition came about? Sure. Well, when I, the, the heyday that I described was a time of almost entirely manual labor. You had some steam shovels and things that were important, but uh, the shovels were the kind you now would use in an excavation project to dig a septic system. You know, they're much smaller than than you see now. Everything was by hand, shovels and picks, and you literally whacked the iron off the walls of this underground. So, you know, everything was people. And uh, the, the getting a ton of ore involved many, many people. And over time, of course, really it's the story of mechanization, for one thing, the shovels and trucks got bigger as technology allowed them to. That reduced the need for people to run smaller shovels and trucks and also fewer people as they developed better drills, as they developed better blasting techniques. They, they needed fewer people. And that's pretty typical of a lot of industries, but it's very pronounced in mining. And so by the time, you know, when, when taconite came back, and I think that's where the story, the old red ore days truly are gone in a lot of ways. What we've got now is the taconite era, which started in the late late 50s, but, but really picked up in the 60s and 70s. And in the 70s, when, when you and I were... But uh, just starting lads, out. yeah, <laughs> glimmers in, or glimmers in the parents' eyes or whatever. You had um, more like twelve thousand miners, and uh, keep in mind the regions more or less ninety to one hundred thousand people. So you had about twelve thousand miners working these taconite plants, and it was a beloved time. A lot of people talk very fondly of the seventies on the range. But you've come to find out the reason why is they were still figuring out how many people they needed to run these plants, and they were way overstaffing them. Sure. And there was a lot of stories of people, you know, playing broomball and, and getting drunk on the job or whatever, you know. Actually, I, my office is at the rail yard here in, uh-huh. uh, in Brainerd, and yeah. it was the same thing in the 70s and early 80s here. Where yeah. Just, the old business model was very labor-intensive, and... The new one was not, and the, during that transition, a lot of people were employed, not doing very much. Yeah, yeah. That, and that was very true here. A lot of old stories, and, and of course, then the, the 80s came, which in, in a lot of ways, the 80s was this great economic time where you, know, you saw the paper economy pick up, and the suburban world that you talk about so much started to, started to uh, ramp up. But for the folks in northern Minnesota, the 80s were one of the worst economic times of the century. I mean, second only to the Great Depression. And what it was is um, that model wasn't working. You know, it wasn't a good business model at all. And they uh, got caught in the, the market was globalizing. You know, the ore was being developed uh, or mined on other places, and steel was made all over the world. And, and uh, it, the U.S. Uh, steelmakers and mining companies just got you know, nailed economically. Huge layoffs, a lot of the plants closed. The first plant, the first taconite plant to, to close permanently, that happened in 1982. And you can really mark that time through the, through the 80s as the, the great local depression. It was a localized depression. The mines kept running off and on, lots of layoffs, lots of starts and stops uh, based on demand. And um, a new model started to develop very slowly, but eventually. And as you got to the 90s, you started to see these mines figure out how to use more automation, use more efficiencies. And um, it's had several contractions since, as even those models have been tweaked. And we're now looking at four to 5,000 miners in 2015 a thousand of them are laid off right now, actually. That's the approximate labor force, which is a third of what it was 30 years ago. I don't know, a 20th or a 30th of what it was in the heyday. Yeah. One of the things about the range that I understood but didn't really appreciate 
until I had spent more time up there is the the intensity of the the union activity and and I, I kind of get the sense from the dialogue you've created thus far that there's really good historical roots of why labor is such a strong force up there as kind yeah. of a, a counterbalance to really extracting the wealth from the community. I know I'm asking you to do a lot here <laughs> in, yeah. a, in a few words, but can you talk maybe a little bit about the rise of the labor movement in this area and yeah. maybe kind of some of its impacts? Absolutely. It's actually, a, it's, it's a really interesting story. And it's as much, uh, you, people today, you say union, and you think about the politics of unions and, and how it's interconnected with uh, democratic politics, for instance, right now. And all of that is, is fine and good and a worthy discussion. But when you talk about unions on the range, it's as much cultural. You have to remember that when it was a mostly immigrant workforce, in the early days, no one spoke the same languages. You know, there were 40-some countries represented on the <laughs> right. range at one time. And I don't know how many languages. Just a little aside, people always remark that there are a lot of bars in Iron Range towns. Like, why does Virginia, Minnesota, a town of 6,000 people, need almost 30 bars on its main streets? And the reason isn't because we're drunks, though some people are. The reason is because all those bars were founded as different language bars. Sure, sure. Of course, as you know, once the liquor license is created, you no one ever lets those lapse. They're, right. they're little licenses to print money. So right. um, these bars have continued on for 100 years. So you had this immigrant workforce and uh, more somewhat distant leadership, and you had a, a system that was designed to get as much out of these workers as they could. Workers initially were paid not by the hour, but by the raw weight of the ore that they mined. Sounds like a great system, I guess. You work harder, you get mine more ore, you make more money. But uh, it doesn't quite work that way because when you have hundreds of workers in a particular mine, where they get sent to mine, and, and uh, who builds the rails, and 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 who builds you know the support works and things like that, you don't get paid for that. Right. You need to do it, but you don't get paid for it. You only get paid if you're digging ore out of the out of the mine, and that means safety is an issue. That means you are working with your foreman, hoping your foreman gives you a place to mine where there's actually ore, which means the foremen were actually taking bribes and the wives would cook food for the foreman's family because it was the only way their husband could get a good assignment. That's the tamest version of that story. Right. So um, yeah, yeah, you can imagine where that would go. Yeah. yeah. And so it was very bad. Um, and that was the contract mining system. So it's a good idea on paper, but uh, uh, in practice, it was very unfair. And it was all, they, they would put miners together in twos and threes of people who don't speak the same language, and they would make sure that they worked together because they could figure out the mining part, but they couldn't organize, they couldn't uh, complain to each other because none of them spoke the same language. And that was the environment with, that, where it all started. Well, uh, you know, I, I can go on and on, but particularly when the Finns got there, the people from Finland, uh, who came totally literate, which is a Finnish thing, even the poorest people were literate, and 90-some percent literacy in Finland, and they came because of the situation with the whites and the reds in Russia. Uh, at one time, all of the socialists in Finland were, were basically uh, asked to leave. <laughs> and they all, a lot of them came here or yeah, yeah. to the UP of Michigan. Yeah. So you had these highly literate, intelligent, very activist union politics Finns who came and started organizing everybody. And, of course, the Finns for many years were blacklisted as a result of that. And this also includes some of my ancestors. I'm a mutt of many different sure. ethnic groups, but the Finns were a big part of, of that process, and later other ethnicities picked up the mantle. And, and Anyway, so you had the labor movement take place where um, there were some very unsuccessful early strikes, and each one got to be more successful. Um, there was a, a big one in 1907, uh, another big one in 1916. The 16 strike was a kind of a draw, but it led to better conditions for the miners, then World War One kind of was really the impetus to allow. They had to pay people well. They had to treat people better because they needed the ore through World War One, and of course, then the Depression. But World War Two is where you saw the unions come in, uh, really, and, and take a powerful role because the, the the importance of the ore was just too much. And then, of course, the, politically, you've seen the unions take such a strong role in in local politics ever since, particularly since World War Two. They they really got a seat at the table. And at the time, it was survival. At the time, it was upward mobility for people, and the, the benefits are really clear. Now, with the decreased mining workforce, 
the unions are still um, a powerful political force, but they no longer represent the significant majority of, of the population that they once did. In Minnesota, we have the DFL, and maybe you can yeah. explain that in, interchange a little bit, because we don't have yeah. the, the Democratic Party the way other states around the country do. We yeah, have yeah, most states have Democrats and Republicans, or maybe some kooky local party, but in Minnesota, we don't have a Democratic Party. We have a Democratic Farmer Labor Party, which was a negotiated solution back in the uh, 1950s, or 40s, rather. So, yeah, we had a Democratic Party. Uh, like every other state, it was uh, early in Minnesota's history dominated by the Germans and the and the Wets uh, who wanted to keep those temperance people down. And it was it was very big in central Minnesota where a lot of the Germans were and big in, in parts of the Twin Cities. And the rest of the state was strongly Republican in the true, true late 1800s style of Republicanism, uh, and it was a Republican stronghold ever since Lincoln through through his early years. But then around the early 1900s, as the labor movement is taking off, Minnesota saw a farmer labor party start, which was very much a workers and farmers party, a working class party became very popular with the immigrant uh, laborers and 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 uh, people like I was describing and you actually saw three parties in Minnesota and the result was typically they would uh, farmer labor and democrats would 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 pull votes away from each other and uh, you still had a strong republican uh, tide in imagine, Minnesota imagine imagine those dynamics <laughs> yeah, well, and, and and here's the other thing. People think of the range as a DFL or a Democratic stronghold because of the unions, but you have to know from 1890, whatever, when a lot of these towns were founded until until about World War II, it was it was strongly Republican, yeah. uh, progressive Republican, Teddy Roosevelt style. Right. But it was um, because none of the immigrants could vote at first. It was very Republican here. All the leaders, uh, Vic Power, the guy I mentioned, was a Republican. But the, the labor politics eventually changed that. So you had that dynamic of the farmer labor party, and then the, Hubert Humphrey was really significant in negotiating the, the merger of the Democratic and the farmer labor party. But I, I just, just for some perspective on how politics here, here was, uh, 1912 election, the one with uh, uh, incumbent Taft versus Woodrow Wilson and then Teddy Roosevelt with the Bull Moose Party, and, and Eugene Debs, the socialist, in many parts of the range... Wilson was a non-factor. Taft was a non-factor. The election was between Teddy Roosevelt and Eugene Debs. Wow! Yeah, that was that was who got most of the votes on the range. And you saw different towns went for Roosevelt, or some went for Debs. Um, that was a pure result of the um, the labor uh, workforce that was there. Yeah. As we got into the '80s and that localized depression you talked about. It seems like the range, I won't say started to pull out of it, because I, I don't think that's a correct way to say it, but it essentially shifted to an economic model that was more, had more in common with the rest of the state. And, mm-hmm. you know, you mentioned the suburban building. In the 70s, you had places that were still connected by railroad, but only modestly connected by automobile, and were very different kind of small towns. Yeah, there was this big shift, and I'd like you to yeah. talk a little bit about that. Well, one of the biggest things from a from planning uh, standpoint that's interesting is when the taconite era came in the seventies, sixties, and seventies. These taconite mines were um, not at the edge of town. By necessity, they needed to be in a remote place. So, you know, Hibbing, uh, there's Hibbing taconite. Hibbing taconite is located, you know. Well, part of it touches the town on the north side, the mining part, but the plant is several miles. And and these taconite mines are, are out in the middle of nowhere. All of them are. Maybe a few miles from a town, but, but never you can't walk there. No one can walk to a so, taconite mine. So before this era, you would have put the town right next to the mine, right? Exactly, and that's how they were all built. Yeah, and, yeah. and their whole model was designed so that you, you lived in the town, you walked down the main street of the town to your workplace. And so... The, the shopping, the everything was logical. You walked right past all of the amenities the town had, and you were living right there near your workplace. Now, the taconite plants are outside of town. It means everybody's got to have a truck, a four-wheel drive truck, to get through the snow, of course. You're driving to work. It also displaced, the, you know, I live out 
believe me, I live 27 miles from Hibbing and 27 miles from Grand Rapids. I'm in the woods, okay? And I have two miners on this road that I live on who drive 27, 24, or actually it's 20 miles to the mine because we're closer to the mine than the town. Yeah. They drive the 20 miles into the mine and, and live out here in the, you know, the, the beauty of, of, of northern woodlands here. And a lot of miners do that now. So the mines uh, went from being the low-class low jobs, you know, that they were at the 100 years ago. Now, the, because, of the, because of the success of the union movement and the importance of the ore in our economy, miners are, are top 20, top 10 percent income of our whole region. Yeah. These are upper, maybe not by national standards, but... By our standards, they're upper upper middle class, and nice. so they they live in in the you know nicer places, and they don't live in towns quite often. They they some do, but they live in the woods or they live in the, wherever they want to live. And for most people who live in northern Minnesota, you know the the advantages are are natural beauty, and they like to live in the woods, so or on a lake or something. And and so um, that totally well, it's it screwy things to all the towns. You you have some of the same models you talk about, uh, suburban-like growth on the edges of towns and and the decay of the downtown and the amenities within the towns. Yeah. Talk a little bit about the IRRRB. It's, <laughs> that, it's such an interesting institution. How did that come about and what were they supposed to do? The Iron Range Resources and Rehabilitation Board, IRRRB, which if you follow range politics, it's always the... It's always the political football being kicked about, but it's a, a board, but it's it's a truly a state agency, but not like other state agencies. It's a regional state agency. It was initially founded, I want to say, Elmer Anderson back in the forties. It started with more of an advisory um, planning capacity uh, to help the Iron Range figure out what to do when its mining dried up, because in the forties that was. You know, they were looking ahead and seeing that the ore was, was being depleted by the, the war and, and, and the building that happened after the war, and they were starting to notice that this was going to be rough if they didn't figure this out. So they've created this agency to kind of really diver- – the idea was to, by today's, in today's language, diversify the economy and, and help the region shift out of its natural resources past. But then that was before Taconite. And when taconite came into being, and everyone realized that mining could go on a lot longer as a result of that, the agency's role shifted. There was a statewide amendment that was voted on in 1964, the taconite amendment, that changed the taxation system to allow uh, taconite plants to pay based on a tonnage of ore mined rather than pay local property taxes. So mines today, pay; they have thousands and thousands and thousands of acres, but they don't pay any property tax. All of their taxes to local governments and schools are paid through this production tax, which then they only have to pay if they're actually mining. Uh, So when they have shutdowns, they're actually not paying any local taxes. During that time, the agency took on a more uh, financial role as as some of that, that production tax was diverted to the agency for the purpose of economic diversification and and kind of overseeing public works projects and uh, job creating projects and things like that that was the goal was was still the same but as a result of the agency's financial dependence on mining it's become kind of a screwy way to try to get away from mining because you have this dynamic where when the mines are doing well, there's more money, everybody's happy, or at least the people touching the money are happy. Nobody seems in a high hurry to do it. So you see a lot of the money spent on things that you know, either relate to mining or, or are ancillary to mining. And that's the challenge with the agency. Founded to diversify the economy, financially dependent on the old economy. Right. So the that I- creates many interesting sideline stories. I got to know the IRRRB through my work when I worked for the engineering firm before 2000. It was interesting to me because they were the, the grant agency. They were the deal maker. So yeah. we would have an engineering project. It was six figures, seven figures. There would be a gap in our funding strategy with the city. And, and so we would go to the IRRRB to get that money. And they were pretty forthcoming for the range cities. They were, they were very forthcoming in terms of their willingness to fund 
a lot of sewer, water, road, street improvement kind of projects. I mean, that's part of what they do, but that's pretty typical of how they approach economic development, isn't it? Yeah, um, it is very much, you have, it's governed within something created by statute called the Taconite Tax Relief Area, which includes all land that is within cities, townships, school districts, I, I believe are the other unit, and that, that have had mining activity uh, within the history of the range. So it, it covers, obviously, the Masabi Range towns and 15, 20 miles north or south of there, maybe more in some cases. It does go up to Grand Marais and the towns affected by the shipping of, of iron ore uh, up the North Shore. So, And then you, you have um, down by Cuyuna, Crosby, Ironton are part of that as well. That's the area where this agency has sway, and very much the cities and, and schools, but especially the cities, it's local property tax money. You have to keep that in mind. Is, and this is where a lot of the political dispute comes, because people see the Iron, Iron Range Resources Agency doing this and say, well, why are they just spending money on their local towns? Where do they get all this money? You have to know that these towns are not collecting property taxes from their biggest industry. So sure. that's uh, how that system comes. And, of course, it's a good thing in the sense that these to- small towns with decaying housing stock and have various economic problems have this resource to put in or repair sewers or, or build a ballpark for the Little League or whatever that a town would want to do. That's a great thing. Uh, but the flip side of that is, to paraphrase, more money, more problems. Yeah. Because, you know, you have this political dynamic whenever that a vast amount of money is, is moving around. You know, mayors of towns become more, it's almost evolutionary. They become evolutionary, narrowly tied to, well, what can I get from the IRRR before my town? And if I'm getting a lot of it, I'm doing a good job, which is a very different, weird way of looking at the job of mayor or city councilor, you know. Right. Um, and it, it also takes that locus of control out of the city and, and again, makes the IRRR this kind of mommy and daddy organization that will take care of things and that's a good thing when they do take care of things and that's needed, but it's this weird dynamic where you have a lot of weak city councils and mayors who, well, I don't mean to call it, they're, they're, they're lovely people, but they're really tuned to the mining income as the way they pay their bills. The IRRB is a state agency with a commissioner, serves at the pleasure of the governor, uh, and a board which has no authority other than to advise, but that has all the political power because the board is made up of state representatives and senators who then work with the mayors to make sure their projects get brought to the commissioner. It's kind of screwy. There's nothing like it, and it works great, uh, marvelously sometimes, and it works really terribly other times. Yeah. And that's what I've often written about is some of the bigger failures I've, I've, I've written about because it's difficult uh, in a closed environment like this where everyone knows each other. And there's a historical tie uh, families uh, go back generations knowing each other in these small towns. And you have some families that have been involved in big efforts to do something that really failed badly and used up a lot of that money, and um, no one quite knows how to talk about it. You know, So you just try it again next time, I guess. You well, know? one of the things that I have seen myself, and I'm probably more attuned to this than most people, but when I visit the range, I see what I would call gold-plated infrastructure in mm-hmm. places where it not only makes no sense, but it, it's almost counterproductive. For a long time, yeah. Jim Oberstar was our representative from our district. I think there's a lot of admirable things that can be said about Representative Oberstar, and I, I think we could talk a long time about the, the good things he did for the district. One of the things that he did was bring in a, a lot of transportation dollars, and yeah. you combine that with the IRRB money that is kind of geared towards that kind of city building. And we have Correct. a lot of divided four-lane highways with, you know, it's 5,000, 6,000 cars a day. We've got a lot of, of strip malls and, and drive-through national chain, you know, McDonald's-type restaurants uh, yep. on the edge of town. It's, in a sense, those mayors kind of chasing growth. But in a, in, from a strong town's perspective, almost the worst kind of way. These aren't right. local well, businesses. These are, it feels like a continuation of that extractive economy almost. 
Yeah, and, and now they're literally extracting the economic base from the towns and putting it, uh, dangling it like bait at the edge of town, uh, literally pulling people out of their cities. Yeah, that's what I see too. And you had this sense that, um, you know, we're new. We're only a hundred years old in terms of a lot of these municipalities. Right. You know, obviously people have been around a lot longer than that, but in terms of the modern quote unquote economy, these towns are new. And the control was the mining companies pretty much ran everything up until World War II. And then you had this huge rise of political power by labor and worker-oriented things. And then you had, that's exactly when Jim Oberstar got elected. You know, I should say, Blodnick got elected after World War II. Oberstar was his chief aide. And then Oberstar got elected after Blodnick. And so that Jim Oberstar model that you described was literally the result of this new power of labor and, and, and democratic interests after World War II. And, and like you said, and I, believe me, I'm, I've historically been tied with democratic politics, so I'm not saying it was all bad. In fact, a lot of it was great, but it was very much the, the political power became the thing to, to wield control for the people, so to speak. That became the cultural model right. for how we did things. So Jim Oberstar got to be chair of the Transportation Committee or ranking Transportation Committee member, and he sent home the federal dollars. Doug Johnson, Senator Doug Johnson, got to be tax chair in the state Senate. Other range lawmakers got a lot of seniority because of our consistent DFL politics, and so state money came in. And then, of course, the IRRRB was the was the, the, the big exclamation point on all of that, able to combine these dollars. And yeah, everyone thought if we're doing something, we're doing the people good. And so a lot of the planning, it wasn't really strategic from a regional standpoint. And this is what I always advocate. I don't mind spending money, but I'd like to spend it for a reason that would benefit the region and, and bring in some natural, natural um, well, it's just economic stability and, and that kind of thing, self-sustaining kind of thing. But um you have this model where um, a state state representative wants people in town X to know that he's doing a job for them, and rather than them saying, you know what, we really need um, another three miles of sewer line going out to uh, Lefty's uh, bar at the edge of town, he'll go to them and say, what can I do for you at the IRRRB this year? And they'll look around and say, well, you know, Lefty's bar's got that septic that's no good, uh, Maybe you could put that sewer line out there. They do it, you know, at right. all the expense that that will cost. Right. And, and, and then you have this That's model where you've extended the infrastructure <laughs> out to, in this case, Lefty's Bar, which may or may not survive the decade, but, right. but it's then lefty. they've got the sewer line and they feel the need to then attract or incentivize businesses to move out to this new infrastructure line outside of the city itself. Yeah. It, it's, it's so funny that you would use that because I actually worked on a project just like that. There was a gas station, uh, uh-huh. like general store and, and you know, it was the city clerk's husband who owned it. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was a mile out of town and, and just a bad location on a swamp and their sewer system had failed. And of course, all of a sudden it became, you know, a, a $250,000 project that the yeah. city had to do. This is a city with a total annual budget of $80,000. You know, this became like the top priority project. And of course, the IRRRB got involved and, and, you know, got it done that way. But those are like absurdities. But that kind of became the MO in, in most places. Yeah, it's very normal. It's so normal that the example I use, the hypothetical example, would apply not just to the thing that you described, but but hundreds of other projects right. Um, right. over the course of 20 or 30 years. You can kind of isolate and see what happens. It's, it's, this is where it gets to psychology and culture as much as politics. Is You mentioned, okay, it's so-and-so's husband, and it's a business that everybody knows and loves, maybe has a history in the town, or or something like that, or the the guy suggesting it, the mayor or the developer, is somebody that everybody knows. They were a hockey star, for instance, or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And, and nobody asks any questions or has any objective thoughts about it because 
well, the money's there, and this is these are good people, and everything's fine, and uh, boop a doo, and right. here we go. Well, and, and I'm not suggesting, and, and wouldn't that there was any money like changing hands under the table. No, no, but there isn't. Yeah. Um, and, no, there isn't. And it's if there just... is, it's tiny amounts of money that's just you know like, yeah. oh, you helped our business, and so we're going to survive one more year. Right. It's not really tangible in terms of like here's ten thousand dollars in an envelope. Exactly. Um, exactly. It, it, it doesn't work that way. No. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's very much just familial, well, it's more is how like, I would put it. Of course we'll do this. I mean, this is the yeah. this guy's part of our community. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And it, it's crazy because you, you go through a place like Hibbing, like I mentioned, and it feels like the economy is a sense, a collection of national chains extracting wealth now from the community with a bunch of like hanging on uh, other places. It feels like through all the best of intentions – We've almost created an economic system that exploits us even more than when we began. Right. Yeah. Well, I tell you, the, the, the thing to remember about the range is, is it's still uh, political. I mean, what's the first thing we talk about is mining, of course. But you know, fewer than 10%, more like 5% right. percent, uh, of the people who live here work in the mines. And a, a handful more than that work in industries related to the mines. That leaves like 90% of the people who live here who do not work in the mines or anything related to the mines. Right. Um, some of them are elderly retirees. Some of them are children, of course. More, more retirees than there are children, as you'd imagine, from our population losses. Yeah. And the rest, where do they work? I mean, I, I just look at my... I have a big family, lots of cousins, and, and, and most of them still live around here. And so I just kind of take my blue-collar family, two blue-collar families that met, you know, and um, look around at what my cousins and family members do. I don't have any minors in my among my cousins. None out of my twenty-some cousins. Yeah. I do have a lot of people who work in healthcare, which is the, which is actually the biggest industry. Right. And I have a lot who work at restaurants and gas stations yeah. or hotels yeah. or things like that. You well, know, that's well, where people work now. And let me ask you this. Their parents, so your aunts and uncles, and, and your wife's aunts and uncles, would they have been in the mines? Some of them were and are. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, uh, I have an uncle who still works at a taconite plant, and I have another who retired from a taconite plant. My dad briefly worked in a taconite plant, though mo- mostly didn't. But, yeah, you have a situation where, like, a lot of my friends' parents, when I was in school, I'd say I had, out of my group of eight friends or seven friends, Three, no, four of them worked in Taconite plants, so half, let's say half. And, and then if you talked about people's grandparents, uh, both of my grandfathers worked in the mines. And most people's grandparents, certainly grandfathers, worked in the mines. Yeah. That's the yeah. dynamic here, yeah. you know. So, and who lives here still? The grandparents all live here, if they're alive. The parents, generally speaking, all live here. The kids don't work in the mines, and many of them left. But the political dynamic is such that at least 60% of the population is intimately nostalgic and reminiscent and connected with mining, even though 5% of the people actually work in mining. And that the new generation, people 40 and under, have all, you know, there are... There are definitely people who work in the mines who are under 40. I know there are hundreds of them. But the point is... Yeah. Thousands of them don't work in the mines. Well, I, I see the same thing with my family. I mean, uh, people who used to work at the mill, used to work <laughs> at the rail yard, and now their kids are waitresses and working at gas stations. And, yeah. you know, that's the shift. But let mm-hmm. me ask you this. And for some reason, Skype just popped up and said, I have six minutes left on this call. I have no idea why it would Uh-oh. say that. I told you I updated Skype before we started. Yeah. Here's what I want to ask you in a couple of minutes that we've got, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> What is the economy that comes next? Obviously, that generation of our cousins are not going to be tied to this economy the, the way that our, our parents and, and their contemporaries were. What is it that comes next? Is it just decline, or, or is there some way to backfill this with something more productive? My hope, for instance, when I wrote my book, not to plug my book, but, no, plug but my book. hope when I wrote the book was that we could make a seamless transition from a mining economy into some whatever is next. I, I now am seeing that we're probably going to have what you would 
just called decline first. Because of that dynamic where 60-plus percent of the people know the old economy and don't understand the new economy, I think something comes next. One of the things that I think picks up is um, it's a good place to live. You watch the world, uh, you watch California's water problems, and you watch various problems around the country. The idea, uh, if you have a job where you can create or work detached from a city, uh, I think the communities here have the potential of drawing in some people, particularly if we start working to attract those kinds of people, which we aren't right now. And in fact, our communities are not very attractive to that kind of worker right now. But I think there's potential there, and that's certainly what I advocate. I also think we're seeing some uh, value-added, some of the traditional natural resource products, but more science and more finished product coming from from the raw material. So it's not just extraction, it's extraction plus fabrication and manufacturing. I, I think there's some potential there. I think a lot of people would like that to just take over. I don't think it's got the numbers or the ability to take over, but it's it's part of part of where our blue collar workers, our, our trade workers are going to end up. And then I think, you know, the model I always look at is Duluth, which is a lot of people use Duluth as a as a, a shining success story because they're they're um, not declining is basically why. Right. Uh, and, and they are not declining. They've turned a lot around. They still have some problems with uh, disparity between the working poor and the middle yeah. class. But you look at Duluth as a regional center. It's an attractive city, and 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 you just imagine that as a regional center like that, there will be some ancillary growth potential in the communities around there. And then, of course, tourism, natural being natural setting, uh, still beautiful to live here, still beautiful to travel here. You know, vacation traffic is as busy as ever. I think we just have to have a, a clear understanding of what we can do and what will happen naturally that we can't change. And I try to break the cycle of thinking that some new mind, for instance, the non-Ferris mines that are so controversial in state politics, that those new mines are, are barely going to backfill the jobs we're going to lose over the next 10 years because of, again, the consolidation of the steel and iron ore industry worldwide. And we haven't even talked about that. But, I mean, right. yes, you, the, when we're talking, the day before we're talking, we had the single biggest drop in iron ore prices in the history of the market yeah. uh, because of the Chinese collapse in their economy. Right. And so that's... That's not good, and uh, yeah. and uh, we don't control that, and and it will close if it keeps up like that. Mines will close here, uh, for simply because they're too expensive. So that's a factor we have to deal with, and so I, I I'd hope as the next generation kind of by default takes over, you might see some change just in the attitudes. I, I think there are some good people doing some good work around here, and it's as you know, as the Strong Towns community knows. It's a challenge, um, but I do believe that there is some hope. I have one last question for you. Okay. And this is kind of a personal one, but you've got three boys. They're uh, about the same age as my two daughters. I look at them now, and I, I ask myself, do I want them to move back here? I want them to go away to college. You went away to college. I went away to college. Yeah. We came back. We're educated people amongst you know, there's a lot of educated people here in the Brainerd area, but oh yeah, I tend to run into more people without master's degrees than with, uh, let's just say. Sure. <laughs> I ask myself often, is my aspiration for my girls that they would want to move back here? And, and I guess without me answering that, I, I'd like you to answer that. You know, is your, yeah. is your aspiration for your kids that they would want to move back there or that they would move back there? The the thing about northern Minnesota and the range today is that it's not just a simple decision of getting a job and making a living. My three boys could definitely do that here if they wanted to. It's a cultural thing as much as anything. It's it's um, what what keeps a lot of people here is family, and I'd like to think that we have a strong enough family relationship where they'd want to be somewhat near me, <laughs> right? Uh, and right. and the grandkids someday could be somewhat near me. As a selfish individual, uh, sure. that is certainly what I would hope for. But if I was a young man like I was before, uh, though I'm still young, of course, but, yeah. you know. Oh, no. If, if, we, if I was a younger man yeah, yeah. Uh, in high school, thinking about it, you know, when I was in high school, I thought I was long gone uh, when I got out of there. Yeah. And um, 
I thought maybe I'd have a cabin someday, you know. That was my thought when I left for college. Right. And um, it was the family and my love. You know, I became a writer of sorts, and, and my I loved the story of the place. So I'm kind of a unique case in why I came back, because I, I, I felt the call, I guess you'd say, to to write and and be a part of telling the story of the place. I don't know that that will apply to my boys. One of them is already talking about building a house next to ours uh, <laughs> and uh, hunting and fishing and and uh, working sure. at the mill where Grandpa worked, the power plant, because he's just that kind of kid. He's just dogmatically focused on, on, yeah, on yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, the other two boys, you know, they... May, you know, and of course, who knows? Time will change. I, I would want them to go where they feel home. Yeah. And this place can see the range is a place. You, everyone who's from here loves it or hates it, but there is no way to be neutral about it. It's that kind of place. Yeah. Even if you hate it, you kind of love it anyway. And even if you love it, like I do, I kind of hate it sometimes because of it. Of it's so many. It's like it's like it's like that big crazy relative unstable hot temper but you love them and they're there for you sometimes when you need them and and you just have all these memories it's hard to extract yourself from this i say i'll say it again familial relationship with with this place it's entirely possible that all three of my boys would want to stay here and if they did i'd be happy and it's entirely possible that all three go far away and if they do, I would be happy for them too. Yeah. It's it's just that kind of place. I know I told you this, but I'm gonna I'm gonna say it here on the the podcast. When I when I got started blogging, you were one of my inspirations. You were one of the guys that I read your blog and followed your stuff and thought, wow, I I really like this. And I, I would I would study some of the things you would do and say, well, I can incorporate that kind of approach in my blog. And so uh, you know, for the people out there listening to the podcast and uh, and reading our blog. You and, and a couple other local Minnesota bloggers were, were very influential for me. So well, thanks, thank Doc. you. Jeez, that's nice. Yeah. Well, and I, I love your book, and I am happy that you mentioned it again. It's called Overburden, Modern Life on the Iron Range. It's a collection of essays. You once told me that you wrote the book for me, and not specifically for me, but for people like me yeah. uh, to learn the story of the range. And I, I thought it was a beautiful collection of essays. Well, so. thanks. Yeah, that's that's... That was our market. It ended up being given as Christmas gifts to a lot of old people, but that's okay, too. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. All right, <laughs> minnesotabrown.com is the web address. Anything else we got to tell people about? Uh, uh, go Twins. Go Twins, man. That's my, uh, that's my KXE sign-off. I, that's uh, your, I, sorry to steal it from you. It's yeah. cool. No, you and I, I've been lobbying to get you on the uh, as a more permanent co-host with me of our uh, making sausage segment. So hopefully well, that'll happen someday. Some I'm always there. If, I'm waiting by the phone any day. We'll try to make that happen. Thanks, Aaron. All right, Chuck. Take All care. Right, take care. Thanks, everybody, yep. for listening. Keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Take care, everybody. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, Magnet City! I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah. 
let's work on a general Minnesota accent. We're going to go straight for the stereotype, and then you can kind of knock it back from there, uh, depending on what you're going for. So let's work on the oral posture of the Minnesota accent. Uh, take a look at me saying this phrase. Oh, geez, I've known him for 20 years or so. So watch what's happening to my mouth. Oh, geez, I've known him for 20 years or so. So there's a lot of lip corner tension and there's not a lot of jaw movement. So you get kind of a little bit of a smile there. They call it the Minnesota friendly accent. The diphthong O, the two elements O, in your Minnesota accent becomes shorter to a, more of a pure sound. So Minnesota becomes Minnesota. O, O, Minnesota. The diphthong I, because the jaw tension in the Minnesota accent, uh, it brings that sound very far forward to I. I. I becomes I. And also, because the jaw doesn't move that much, that R sound becomes kind of hard. So, work and further uh, are the R sounds in the words work and further. Work and further. So, in this oral posture, the AH sound becomes more uh, forward. So, father becomes father. Gone becomes gone. So what's the musicality of this accent? Listen to this phrase. Oh, geez, I've known it for 20 years or so. There's a lot of upward inflect. It's a very friendly accent there. Um, so that tells you a little bit about uh, the people from Minnesota, possibly. But don't take my word for it. Go listen to some native Minnesota speakers and discover the accent for yourself.